Hi, and welcome. Today I'm talking with Helen Carr, who's a historian and also a podcaster of Hidden Histories. I love interviewing scholars, students, academics, amateurs, podcasters, authors, and many more. You might also notice that we tape this episode online, and there could be some sound issues. Hopefully, they're all sorted, but there was also my first audio bomb. So you'll hear that at some point, but it's pretty sweet. As you know, not all topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie, I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. Now it's time to look back at an interesting figure in history, hey? Today I'm talking with Helen from the Hidden Histories podcast, and I am so delighted she's here to talk to me. I'm very excited. Thank you for being here, Helen. Thank you for having me. I guess uh, we can kind of jump ahead and just ask you to present your topic. Yes, I'm currently working on a um, biography on John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster at the moment, and that is due to be published probably now next year due to um, the current situation that we're in. And that is a narrative history of his life. He was the third son, surviving son of Edward III, and he was incredibly influential um, as a magnate and as a man, as a politician. Um, And ultimately, he was the founder of a dynasty that endured through British history up until today. And can I ask why you love this topic or this person in history so much? Um, Well, it went back really the very beginning of my academic study, I read about him as a character. And I initially was really fascinated with his palace, the Savoy Palace. And I was quite interested in the architecture of London and the landscaping of London in the Middle Ages. Because um, if anybody, any of your listeners have been to England, you'll know that it's, it's peppered with little pockets of historical buildings, streets. And I found that as a as a map really fascinating and it was his incredible palace and the descriptions of his palace that really drew me to him and I did some research and I thought okay well I'll I'll go and see what remains of this palace and I found that there's absolutely nothing left and I found that that was so remarkable then I delved into the story behind it and why it no longer survives um, and I learned more about him and I just thought gosh this is such a fascinating man yet he really hasn't been given the same level of attention as you know the kings and the queens within that era that he was so heavily directly involved with perfect that's a really fun way to find somebody is you know through looking at architecture or any little nugget of historical fact so that's quite interesting so maybe for those who aren't aware what time period are we talking about like where are we starting and sort of what was happening around this time So this is the 14th century. It's the second half of the 14th century. And I really begin my um, book with the reign of Edward III and um, the beginning of his reign, but also the emerging of the Hundred Years' War, um, as it has now gained the title. And it goes all the way through into the very, very last um, few years of the 14th century into the reign of Richard II. Um, And John of Gaunt's life spanned these two kings and this period of political and dynastic tumult. Okay, so where was he born and, you know, where is he from? (laughs) So he's named John of Gaunt because he was um, was actually born in Ghent. 
his mother, Queen Philippa of Hainault, was actually being held. Um, she wasn't quite a prisoner. She was more of a hostage at the time. She was used as collateral, so to speak, for the king, Edward III, who was in the middle of the early stages of the Hundred Years' War with France. He had just won an incredibly successful sea battle when John of Gaunt was born. And the sources say that the king arrived in Ghent, the Abbey of St. Bavon, which is where John of Gaunt was born and his queen was there and waiting for him with his newborn son, with his new prince, following the success of this battle. That was in 1340. He was then brought back to England and he received the same sort of education that a young nobleman, a young prince would have. He was very well educated. He was taught languages. He was taught literature, taught the art of war. And he lived very much um, in the shadow, but also he was very influenced by his older brother, who was another very famous prince. He was called the Black Prince. He was um, Edward of Woodstock. And so he grew up very much under the tutelage of his brother. His brother was quite a bit older than him. And for some period, he even lived with his older brother, learning from him, learning how what it was like to be a prince, what it was like to manage lands, and what it was like to conduct warfare, to practice the art of war. And I think that those lessons that he learned in that early period of his life really stuck with him um, throughout. Can you explain to us a little bit what we now know as the Hundred Years' War, sort of what was going on since it was a big part of his life, I guess? Yeah, because the Hundred Years' War began um, with Edward III. He instigated the war. It was over a pocket of land in France called Gascony. And I won't go too deep into the politics of that because it gets very confusing and can come up as a little bit boring. Um, but basically, he believed that he had uh, claimed the throne of France through his mother, who was um, Queen Isabella. She was the daughter of the French king. He claimed right to these lands through her. And so he decided to lead a campaign into France. He thought that it would be lucrative for England. And he really committed most of his life to this claim and he was very successful he actually managed to obtain a huge amount of land within France that was later lost but actually um, England he, he managed to expand England's interests remarkably so John of Gaunt grew up within this construct and Edward was constantly pushing for this war but in doing so he was having to persuade parliament he was having to persuade the commons basically the people who fund wars um, to continue to pay for it, because this is incredibly expensive. I mean, there were a series of taxes that would pay for the war. The people who were in sort of lower echelons of society, who were a bit poorer, were being asked to put money up front for a king to essentially go and claim his birthright. But he would need to prove why that was in their interest as well. And one way that he did this was, inc- I think, just incredibly clever. He has a fantastic political acumen, and he really promoted the idea of chivalry and the idea of camaraderie, the cult of St. George. He created this image of England as this conquering and united country um, that I think is something that has negatively as well endured through to the modern day. And John of Gaunt grew up within this realm of royal authority and royal dignity. And it was the pit of the age of chivalry. I mean, you have Torsa, the Knight's Tale being written around this time. You have um, the incredible jousts and tournaments that were being enacted at the time, which was all a way of, I suppose, advertising war as this very glamorous activity. And actually it was it was bloody, it was expensive, and it was incredibly costly. 
And so for John of Gaunt, this was this was really influential and continued to be an important aspect of royalty and royal authority for throughout his life. Mm-hmm. So he had a very different upbringing than, let's say, somebody even 20 years earlier. It seems as though there were many changes during this time. I think there was a more of a um, continental push at this time. Um, there was a lot of political expansion. Edward was marrying his sons to various princesses or uh, or noble women um, all over what we now call Europe. So, for example, his son Lionel was married to um, the daughter of an Italian vicomte. And he was expanding his network. He was being very politically savvy. He was trying to expand the interests of England and he was trying to gain allies for himself, um, very much in pursuit of this key goal, which was the throne of France. And very early on, John of Gaunt, I think his first battle he went on, he was age 10, which um, his mother anxiously stood over on the cliffs, I think, in um, near Dover. I might need to check that. Um, uh, watching this sea battle take place with young John of Gaunt on board one of the ships. Um, and so he was he was thrown into this sort of glamorous but dangerous and exciting world from a very young age. He went on campaign with his father to France, which was large, mostly unsuccessful. But he did see some victories take place. And he was also trusted with leading men. Um, and he very much did as he was told. He quietly learned very experienced men politically and in war. Um, and, yeah, he was very heavily involved in that early um, push for, for the throne of France. I guess he started his battle experience, if you will, at a young age. What happened as he grew up? Well, he was very shaped by his father and his brother's um, military experience. So his brother, very famously the Black Prince, he won his spurs, um, which it was called by um, in the Battle of Cressy in 1346, which is six years after John Gaunt was born. Um, And he did so by plucking three feathers from the helmet of John of Bohemia, um, who was laid dead on the battlefield. And that was, you know, what he became famous for. He became famous as this this warrior. And so John of Gaunt was really influenced by his older brother. I think that he idolised him. Um, And he, on these campaigns at quite a young age, he watched his brother and his father enact war. Um, he watched the way that they fought, the way that they conducted diplomacy. Um, and then he was also influenced as well by some of his father's closest advisors. So Henry, Duke of Lancaster, John of Gaunt was to marry Henry's daughter later on, Blanche. He was also a very esteemed military man and he gained a huge amount of money from war and from the Hundred Years' War. It could be a very, very lucrative event. It could be a very lucrative opportunity for many men in England at the time. Um, So he was influenced by him as well. So he was surrounded by these very esteemed warriors and politicians as well. So they they went hand in hand. And this continued into 1367 in the Battle of Najera, which I think was a real turning point for John of Gaunt. So the Black Prince, his older brother, was stationed in Aquitaine, which was um, an area within France that was run, controlled by the English. And he was given the opportunity um, at the behest of the King of Castile, who his throne had been usurped by his half-brother, Henry. So the Black Prince, having been begged by this this place king, um, decided that he would go to his aid with the promise that then Castile would be an ally of the English and they would be in support of England's uh, claim against France. And John of Gaunt went with his brother 
on this campaign. And it all culminated in this incredible, this large battle called the Battle of Najera, which took place in the summer. It was very hot. And you can imagine these men sweating in, in all of this armour and chainmail. Um, and John of Gaunt fought alongside his brother in this battle. It was really managed by the both of them together. And that was the last time that ever really happened. So it was this successful battle. There were a lot of hostages taken. Hostages were always very lucrative because they came with a ransom. And um, it was this glorious point in John of Gaunt's life where he had uh, had achieved this grand battle and they had managed to place Pear back on, on the throne. And subsequently, his brother later fell very ill after the battle. Um, and he never really got to experience that level of military success again so I think that that battle really shaped him and that I think was kind of his last um his last period of military glory within the landscape of the hundred years war yeah that was his last experience of military glory within the hundred years war and it was important to him because it was shared with his brother and it was part of his father's overall dynastic plan and um and political plan so how old was he when this happened? Was he a younger man or was he a little bit older? Um, he was, I suppose, well, almost middle-aged. If you're talking about medieval standards, he was 27 years old. He was already married at this point to Blanche of Lancaster. And things were going pretty well for him up until, up until now. Um, and it was afterwards that he suffered a period of loss in his life. Um, his wife, Blanche, died, likely from postpartum complexities. Um, he already had three children with her, including his first son, Henry, um, a daughter called Philippa and a younger, young daughter called Elizabeth as well. Um, so he was left bereft at the loss of his wife. Blanche was really young when she died. She was only in her 20s. Um, and with her, he had um, inherited a huge amount of title and land because her father was Henry, Duke of Lancaster. And with their marriage came all of her wealth. This was added to because also her sister Maud had died. So after Blanche died, he was the sole heir to all of this Lancastrian wealth, which is what made him go on to become such a powerful magnate within England, as well as being a prince. So, yeah, I would say that um, Blanche's death in the Battle of Najera was really the um, was kind of the end of his 20s. He was still very active. He was still young, um, but he still had a lot of his life ahead of him. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned that his brother got sick after this battle. So what happened in the family at that point? Yeah, so the Black Prince, um, he appeared to be suffering some kind of dysentery following the Battle of Najera. He was really unwell. Um, and he went back to Aquitaine and he just lived in discomfort for years until it was decided in 1370 one to come back to England um, and John of Gaunt then took over the role and was called was titled the Lieutenant of Aquitaine so he was really against doing this he didn't really want to go and do this job um, he didn't want to be in, in Aquitaine but he knew that his brother needed him his brother was far too unwell to maintain um, this land and so he went over for him and he represented him his brother and his father's interests there but I think Around this time, it was interesting because being away from his father and away from his brother, he was starting to develop his own sense of self and his own 
interests, his own political interests. He was incredibly ambitious. Um, and he saw an opportunity following on from the success of the Battle of Najera in Castile to claim Castile for himself. And he saw this as an opportunity because um, all of the good work they'd done, the Battle of Najera by replacing Pear on the throne was undone again. And Pear was brutally murdered by his half-brother and his two daughters were exiled. So John of Gaunt had these two daughters as well on his conscience and he decided with his wife Blanche having um, died that he was free to marry again. And by marrying the eldest daughter Constance, he was then putting himself in line for the inheritance of Castile and the kingship of Castile. So from 1372, he married Constance of Castile whilst he was in Aquitaine and he was signing documents as John of Gaunt, King of Castile and Leon. So I think his brother's illness um, and his responsibility that he took on thereafter um, was in a way a, a, a very difficult time. It was a huge amount of responsibility, but I think it also gave him confidence in his aspirations. And I think that he developed a sense of self that he would then take on throughout the rest of his life, especially this claim to Castile, which he um, ardently pursued for many years to come. As you said, he really wanted sort of to expand his own political gains at that point. Yeah, definitely. But I think that it also came hand in hand with familial loyalty as well and and continuing his father's legacy. Um, I think that he wanted a little bit of the person. I think he wanted a little bit of the pie of the success and the military reputation. Um, But I also think that he was incredibly, he was incredibly diplomatic and I think that he was incredibly forward thinking. He's a man before his time. He saw opportunity elsewhere. He saw opportunity in the lucrative trade that he could get in managing Castile. And I think that he, however loyal he was to England and to his family and to the crown, I think he did want to extend his politics further afield. And I think that the loyalty that he demonstrated to his father and later his nephew I think, was also what kind of held him back and hindered him. And he was very aware of that. It was this constant conflict that was going on um, throughout his life, really. Sort of the familial obligations versus his own need or want of expansion and change. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, it was very nuanced in a way. I think there was lots of, sometimes those those two interests aligned perfectly and at other times they didn't. And he had to choose as to which line he was going to go down. Ultimately, it was pretty much always a family and duty. So he seemed to be very close to them. Uh, That's a tricky question. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he was very close to his father um, and he had his father's interests at heart. I think he was very close to his brother, the Black Prince. Um, I think he was very, he was very loyal. He had a very very strong sense of duty and that is something that has been through my study of him has been consistent in his character throughout his life he even had an unbreakable duty um, when he was pushed by to the very very brink especially by his nephew Richard Um, and ultimately I think he always sought to do the right thing for the crowd he was a staunch royalist and he couldn't bear anybody he disputed royal authority didn't get on very well with the commons um, and he didn't get along particularly well with the merchants that were existed and, and had a lot of authority within 
places like London at the time. Um, so yeah, he was incredibly loyal to his family. Close, I wouldn't say he was close to all of them, but I think that her duty came above all. You've mentioned his nephew, Richard. Did you want to tell us a little bit about their either their relationship or some progression in the history of John of Gaunt? So after John of Gaunt came, he came after his lieutenancy in Aquitaine, he came back to England with his new wife, Constance, um, and he was signing you know, his King of Castile. So he, again, he started this period as a displaced king. He exercised his royal authority uh, from the Savoy Palace in London, which was um, a very, very grand uh, manor house, which lay on the Thames, and it was close to Westminster. And it was an incredibly lucrative area. He invested a lot in this palace. He made it a powerhouse for his kingly and his Lancastrian um, administration. So he was he had this continental court, as it's been put, at the Savoy Palace. There were Spanish members of his household, which in London, which was always very traditionally um, concerned with mercantile trade, found this sort of exercise disconcerting they couldn't understand why he was so adamant at pursuing this claim to Castile and they weren't particularly welcoming of the um of the foreign members of his court as well they saw them as a threat they couldn't understand it and it made people feel quite uncomfortable and so he was living in the Savoy in London um he was also building um castles elsewhere Kenilworth Castle Warwickshire was his greatest building project in England at the time and so he was just starting to um, really place himself and set himself up as this as this kingly figure, yet he was still working for his father, who was the king at the time. Um, Edward III at this point was starting to lose interest really in the war with France. There had been the Treaty of Bretigny, which had been signed, and that sort of created a truce at the time being. And he was much more, um, he was drawing really, and he was placing a lot more pressure on John of Gaunt. The Black Prince had come back from Aquitaine. Um, he was incredibly sick. He was actually bed-bound most of the time. And there was a parliament held in 1376 where a lot of the discomfort of the commons was raised. It was called the Good Parliament. And John of Gaunt represented his father in this parliament and made himself quite a lot of enemies. This is quite a famous parliament in the 14th century. Um, it was when all the grievances of the commons were aired. There hadn't been for a long time. There'd been no opportunity people to um, express their discontent with how the, how the realm was being run. So John of Gaunt was this, he was this figure representing the king. The king was um, aged. He didn't want to um, manage the politics at this time. And then his older brother was also incredibly sick. His brother did come to this parliament um, at one point and he was so ill, he was actually carried on a bed, like a pallet type, type bed. Um, and it was actually during this parliament that his brother passed away. So he had this illness they thought was dysentery but nobody has dysentery for that long um there's a there's a fantastic biographer of the black prince called michael jones who speculates that he might have had um some kind of cancer which caused him to experience um symptoms like dysentery so the black prince died and on his deathbed he asked john of gaunt to swear allegiance to his son his only surviving son who would be now in line to the throne his name was richard a year later, the king, Edward, he died. He died of a stroke, which is indicative if anyone has seen his death mask, which is in Westminster Abbey. You can, you can Google it. It's online pictures of it. You can see his mouth is slightly downturned, which scholars have argued that that was likely the cause of his death, his stroke. So he died at the Palace of Sheen 
um, there was this huge uh, funeral procession um, and he was laid to rest and Richard was um, then crowned king. Now, John of Gaunt was the man, the sole man who was in charge of overseeing both the funeral of his father, um, he was heavily involved with the funeral of his brother, as well as managing the good parliament and also the coronation of his nephew. This is a huge amount of responsibility for one man. Um, and he had to do this with extraordinary diplomacy, which is very carefully. And he was also very aware of the accusations that were flying around that he sought to take the crown for himself. It was a real Richard III, young prince kind of scenario. And actually, he was very heavily criticised for that. People genuinely believed that he was going to usurp the throne. There was a feeling of um, uncertainty over what his actions were going to be. He certainly had the wealth with it because of the amount of land that he owned. And he could have done um, if he saw it um, appropriate, he could have done it. But he didn't. And I don't think that's because he felt he wouldn't have the support. I think he genuinely had no interest in claiming the throne for himself. I think he wanted to support the young king. Um, I think he was completely loyal to his brother and his father and loyal to the natural dynastic succession. I don't think it was ever in question whether he would be king himself, which, you know, argues very much against what many of the chroniclers at the time were suggesting. Yeah, he supported the young Richard. Um, and what happened when Richard ascended the throne was he was given a group of councillors who were very involved within his father's administration and his father's uh, close circle. And John of Gaunt sort of acted as this overseer. He didn't ever extend his authority too far. I think that he made suggestions, but he very much agreed and complied with Richard's needs at the time. However, he was also incredibly powerful. He definitely managed to persuade the young king to do things that were in his interest. He was very fair, but I think that he naturally had more sway. He naturally had more weight with how the way things were going to go because he was the eldest surviving son of the last fully competent king. Um, and that's just the way it was. So, yeah, this was a period um, for a few years where John of Gaunt really lived in relative comfort. He was very much involved with building his home in Kenilworth, which is this magnificent castle, which still stands today if anyone wants to go and see it. Absolutely fantastic. And it shows um, evidence of his wealth and also just the extent of his ability to build such complex and architectural feats that were his castles at the time. So I definitely recommend somebody going to see and people going to see that if they can. So, yeah, this was a time where he was exercising his authority and he was um, very politically powerful. Within this time period, he's taking care of all these big events in his life. And you also mentioned how at government, people were bringing in grievances. What was happening around that time to kind of spark such grievances? This is towards the end of Edward III's reign, but it also continued into Richard's reign. The crown was, they had very little money. They were still paying the debts from the war in France, which had ultimately not been as successful as um, Edward anticipated. The crown was basically broke. Jewels were being sold as collateral for loans. Um, and it was just this series of parliaments where you have the chancellor after chancellor saying, we're really skint. We need to get some more money. And so it was always down to generally the commons to have to, to front this, this new wave of influx of cash. 
And so John of Gaunt was having to mediate this. He was also pushing at this point to try and get his claim to Castile realised. And that, again, would take men, it would take money. And he was under criticism for that. People didn't think that that was an appropriate way of spending the people's money to try and, you know, claim his kingship. What did that mean to other people? So he was in this position where he had this big kind of dynastic intention and ambition. Um, but he also was quite hamstrung by the fact that he was being regulated by the monetary needs of the country. Mm-hmm. My history around this time is very spotty, so I apologize. But I think this was around the time of the Peasants' Revolt or somewhere in here. What did John of Gaunt do or how was he involved in this? Yeah, I mean, this was really the, the reason for the Peasants' Revolt. It was the excessive tax that was inflicted on people to the point where people just said, we've had enough, we can't afford this. And this isn't caring for your country. It's not caring for your people. It's it's paying for the ambitions of great men and the ambitions of wealthy nobles. They refused to comply with this, basically. and They couldn't. Um, so what happened was in, there were these series of parliaments between 1380 and 1381, where the crown realised the level of their debt. And it was decided um, in a parliament which was held in Northampton in 1380 that the commons and the labouring classes were going to need to face another tax, another poll tax, in order to pay for the cost that it would take to keep the country safe from attacks from France, for example, because French ships at this point were um, targeting the English coastline. Um, There were some skirmishes and invasions that were taking place. And so the country was quite unstable. It it was very uncertain how they were going to maintain peace within the borders. There was conflict up in Scotland as well, in the Scottish borders. From every angle, there were um, adversaries coming at the country. They had a young king. England was in a, a place of discomfort. They weren't particularly secure. And so the tax, it was decided that this tax was put in place um, and it was tripled from the last tax. It was absolutely extraordinary. And originally they just they said, we'll split the tax in two. So we'll get taken in one point during uh, during the year and then later in, again at another point. So there's going to be a tax in January and then there was going to be a tax in the summer to give people a chance to um, gather their funds. Quite quickly, it was decided that the money wasn't coming in fast enough. So the um, Chancellor, the Archbishop Simon Sudbury, demanded that it was better that the tax was collected all at once. And this was um, backed by the Treasurer, who's called Robert Hales. At this point, John of Gaunt was, he was having to deal with the the, um, political tension in Scotland. He was, as I said before, he was an incredibly good diplomat. And the Scots really warm to him. He was incredibly experienced with dealing with the Scots. He was up in Scotland with his father from a young age. He was even at one point suggested as the next heir apparent for King of Scotland. So he was very au fait with um, the Scottish nobles. And so he was the natural choice to be exercising this kind of diplomacy. So at the time he was in Scotland and he left his palace, the Savoy in London, with his uh, retinue of his army um, in his household in May, and he would never see his palace standing again. So what happened was um, when the tax started to be collected, revolts broke out and people started to rise up. There were two main uprisings in Kent and in Essex, and these two bands of rebels marched on London. They wanted to 
get the ear of the king. They wanted the king to hear why they were so um, outraged by this. And, you know, their point was fair. The way they exercised it was brutal. It was savage. They murdered many people. Um, They coerced people into joining them. They destroyed property. They released prisoners from various prisons. It was anarchy. And there was an extraordinary amount of rebels who ended up banding together and marching on London. And eventually they reached the gates of London. They were um, permitted entry by the gatekeepers because when you're faced with this level of, um, of force, it's really just a matter of time before they would find a way into the city anyway. So they permitted their entry. And many of the Londoners were with them. They agreed with them. They were targeting the king's advisers. So they were targeting people like the Chancellor, Archbishop of Canterbury, Simon Sudbury. They were targeting the Treasurer. And they were targeting John of Gaunt, who they saw as a key oppressor. You know, they were famously saying, we will have no king called John, which is um, indicative of his title of King of Castile, but also, again, potentially this idea that he wanted the throne for himself. Um, They weren't angry at the king. They saw him as this innocent, young king. He was quite sort of godlike in their minds. So they just wanted him to uh, hear their grievances and to take action against those who had been giving him bad advice. Um, And so to get his attention, they destroyed property um, and enacted brutal murders in London. Many foreign people were targeted. There are source mentions a brothel run by Flemish women that was burnt, destroyed um, on London Bridge. Um, It was really violent, incredibly violent. There was, you know, executions happening in the streets. And it really was this unbridled, furious rebellion. But, But they were angry. Now, eventually, they did manage to speak to the king, and he promised that he would hear their grievances. And whilst the king was speaking with them, he had been um, in the Tower of London um, to keep himself safe. It was, you know, the only fortification at this point that they deemed to be the safe place for him and his um, his closest advisers. While he was negotiating with the rebels, his two advisers, Simon Sudbury, the Archbishop, and Robert Hales, the Treasurer, were, stayed inside the Tower because the rebels were targeting them. It wouldn't be safe um, anywhere else. But they managed to make their way in. Um, They were likely admitted entry by some of the guards. And they came upon um, Simon Sudbury, who was praying in the chapel, and their treasurer, Robert Hills, and they dragged them out. They dragged them up onto Tower Hill, and they beheaded them. Um, Simon Sudbury, it was horrific, eight blows to decapitate the archbishop. And actually, one of the weird little gruesome <laughs> things that we have in the UK is Simon Salisbury's head, which still remains. Um, I can't remember what it is. It's in, it's in a little church somewhere, but I'm sure if you Google it, you can find out where. But um, so, yeah, he was killed. And also, to, uh, one of the people who was also killed, dragged from the Tower of London, was Brother William Appleton, who was one of John of Gaunt's men. And so just because he was one of Gaunt's men, he was targeted and he was killed. He lost his life for just having... Um, a connection to the Duke. That's how hated he was. And John of Gaunt's palace, the Savoy, was the most damaged building within the entire revolt. There was absolutely no mercy. The, the rebels who um, who managed to find their way into the palace completely destroyed it. I mean, there are some amazing accounts of what they of what they did. I mean, they found his clothes, they were pulling his clothes out of chests, they were hacking his furniture, they were burning tapestries, they were just 
destroying all of this wealth, all of this um, property. Um, and they were obviously furious to find that he wasn't there. He was up in Scotland. And so instead they made do with this sort of mock figurine of him. And they found one of his, um, it was called a jacket, like a kind of jacket type thing that he would have worn, um, that they affixed to a pike and they attacked it. They shot arrows at it and hacked it with axes. So this is just demonstrative of how angry they were and how they saw him as um, one of these key oppressors. Um, Eventually, famously, Richard met with them again. And Wat Tyler, the leader of the revolt, was struck down and Richard managed to overpower the rebels and they eventually dispersed. But meanwhile, John of Gauntup in Scotland, I mean, this was a huge, huge, huge turning point for him. He went from this incredibly powerful, um, authoritative, regal figure to being more vulnerable than any nobleman within the court at this point. He was so vulnerable. So he heard about the revolt. He was sent word whilst he was with the Scots, whilst he was negotiating peace. So he was in the hands of enemies, so to speak, when he heard about this. When he tried to keep it a secret from the Scots, they heard pretty quickly. So he was already then pretty vulnerable because they knew of the unrest that was happening in England at the time. And he was told that there was an army of, I think it was sort of around 20,000 who were coming up to kill him, that they were chasing him down. He didn't know that he was in favour with the king. The last he heard, the king had sanctioned this. So he was terrified. He, he sent orders to try and strengthen his properties, to try and prepare for incursion. Um, but he was really limited as to what he could actually do until he heard from Richard as to where he stood um, he tried to move south to his property in, in Pontefract, where his household were kept at the time, and he was not permitted to leave the area. He was not permitted to move anywhere when he came into um, contact with Henry Percy, who was the Earl of Northumberland, who until now had been Gaunt's ally. So he was literally not permitted hospitality by one of the men who was supposed to essentially uh, be slightly beneath him um, in the pecking order. So for a very proud man, a prince, this was a huge shock. It was such an insult to his name, his character, his his right. He wasn't even allowed to go and collect property or his belongings from any of the castles in England. So he was forced to go back up to Scotland to essentially seek mercy and help from the Scots. And you can imagine this incredibly proud man who had just spent all of this time negotiating um, intense truce with, with the Scots. He had... He laid everything on the line to kind of come back with his tail between his legs and say, oh, actually, I kind of need your help. I really, I'm really unsafe. Unfortunately, they were very kind to him. He stayed at Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh. Um, I think it may have been Abbey at the time. He was devastated. He, he didn't know what to do. And I think this would kind of naturally and seamlessly bring us to um, one of his great loves of his life at this point, because this lady very much came into the fore in the chronicles at this point and lay apparently in his conscience as well and that was Catherine Swinford so Catherine Swinford was his mistress um she had been his mistress for around I think probably around 10 years they'd had children together they were later known as the Beauforts um and it was through the line between John and Catherine that actually the royal dynasty then continued so the Tudors came from the Beaufort line so that's why they're very very important so at this point he 
despite having had these children, despite having had 10 years with this woman, um, he renounced her and he came across as incredibly pious. Um, He decided that he was going to remove her from his household, from his service. Essentially, this was a pretty brutal breakup um, after a 10-year affair. And I think that he did this because he had received so much criticism for his relationship with Catherine. It was an adulterous relationship. Um, and he, I think he was so aware that he was now under massive scrutiny. He didn't know whether he was even going to survive this. He had to do something. And an adulterous relationship under the eyes of God was sin. And so he had to do the first thing that was in his power, which was end this relationship he had been so castigated for. Um, and I think that, you know, it might seem for a medieval powerful man, this wasn't a particularly momentous thing. But actually, I think it was an incredibly painful thing for him to do. Later on, he actually built a shrine to St. Catherine, um, which I think was, this was only a, a month or so later, and I think that this was in memory of Catherine. You hear my daughter shouting on me. Um, <laughs> um, you need to go get her? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Don't worry, my husband's with her. Yeah, so this was momentous. He sort of had to lay himself bare in many ways. Um, And he had to cut away any kind of negative connection. It's almost like, I would say, if you think about a celebrity who finds himself having done something that has caught negative public attention. I don't know, they've been photographed doing this or doing that. Their immediate response is to cut away all the bad ties you know you come across as this incredibly this rebirth this very pure figure and that's really essentially what he did um so he you know he sort of devoted himself to god and he was you know he was a very pious man he had a very conventional piety but he it was more overt than he had previously demonstrated um and he very very publicly removed Catherine from his service and, and reconnected with his wife constance who they didn't have the most natural of marriages and that was, I think, quite a, a painful exercise for him. Eventually, he did hear from Richard. He did hear that he was in his nephew's favour. And he made his way back down south. But he had to really start in a very different position as to how he was before. He was still powerful, but he had to be very careful. His actions demonstrated just how easy it was for people to rise up against him. And he was already horrifically unpopular. So he had a very sharp tongue and he was quick to anger. And so he, there are examples of him constantly saying things that it then had to be like, oh, stop, you know, end it there. Stop now. Don't, don't keep going. You're going to cause a revolt again. So I think um, he had to rein himself in a lot after this point. But I think what this does demonstrate as well, the Peasants' Revolt, is how his relationship changed with Richard. Richard was around 14, time of the Peasants' Revolt. He arguably gained confidence at this point as well because he did famously single-handedly ride up to the peasants and say I am your king um you know I I will do you no harm well he did them a lot of harm in the end but it's sort of this idea of kingship really went to his head he saw himself as a very um as a divine figure he was he was divinely appointed by God he was indisputable king he was plantagenet it was in his blood he knew that he was a king, but he didn't understand what it meant to be a king. He didn't understand what it was to exercise that authority in not just an authoritarian way, but actually a fair, just, concerned and well-educated way, as in well-educated in what it is to be political, what it is to manage. 
to um, to run a country. Um, and I think these are things that Richard lacked, um, despite having had multiple advisors around him through his youth. So after the President's Revolt, I think the key thing for me, which I do talk about in my book, is why did it take Richard so long to dispatch a letter to his uncle? John of Gaunt was waiting for weeks before he heard from his nephew. Now, obviously, you know, we don't have, it was not as quick to get word to somebody as it is today. However, John of Gaunt was his main advisor. He was the, at this point, he would have been something happened to Richard. He would have been next in line. He was a big, big figure in Richard's life, yet he left it this long before he contacted his uncle. And I believe that it wasn't even at Richard's um, uh, instigation that that he even contacted him. He was advised to. So I think there's something in this that is petulant about Richard. It shows this sort of, well, I don't need him um, kind of attitude. And I think that that definitely marks their relationship going forward at this point. So John of Gaunt went back to London at this point. So he's around Richard. What is his function now? Yeah, he's he's still powerful. He never rebuilds the Savoy Palace, which I think is um, a statement in itself. Usually buildings would be repaired or rebuilt or he would rebuild another property in London, having, you know, spending so much time um, at Parliament and Westminster, etc. But he chose not to. I think he separated himself from the... Um, from the dealings of court life, I think he actually really didn't want to be near London. I think he spent a lot more time in his properties in Hartford and Kenilworth. Um, so, you know, Hartford was near London. When he was in London, he stayed in places like in Fulham. So he was actually quite far from the city. He didn't have the guts to, well, the guts. I mean, he he said, so there was a brilliant quote, says John of Gaunt, um, you know, he couldn't sleep at night when he was in London. I mean, I think that's very much how he was feeling at this point. He wasn't ever really safe when he was there because he was so hated. And um, so he never, yeah, he never rebuilt the Savoy. He wanted to remove himself. I think his eye now was on Spain, but he also was so duty bound to foster his nephew's kingship and to make sure that he was he was running the country efficiently and that he was really continuing the legacy of his father and his grandfather. Um, so he did Richard's bidding. He did try and push to for Castile. He did try and push for some campaigns to Castile, which was in his interest and arguably the countries as well. But he essentially was used as a diplomatic figure. He went to France and Flanders to negotiate. Um, there was a rebellion happening in Flanders at the time. That was a place that was very crucial to the wool trade for England, which is incredibly lucrative trade at this point. So this was a very important role. And he was also going on these sorts of expeditions with um, younger members now of the court. So his son, Henry Bolingbroke, um, who would later become Henry IV, he was with his father at this point. He was learning. So I think that he was invested in the education of these younger figures in court. I think he did take a step back in his visibility in London as a central administration. I mean, this, yeah, like I said, I think the Savoy not being rebuilt was quite a big statement in itself. But he still had a lot of power. He had an extraordinary amount of men. And he did maintain his dignity and his status very well, despite having so much um, anger and, and malice that was directed at him. So, yeah, he was he was being used very much as a diplomatic figure by Richard. There were lots of points of contention. There is a couple of examples around this time of Richard 
being told that his uncle was going to have him killed, at which point he immediately responded like, I'll have him executed, rest him, you know, without any thought. And vice versa as well. Gaunt was told that Richard was, you know, going to arrest him and have him killed. So I think that there was this real power struggle going on between them. And there was lots of these, you know, moments where Gaunt would storm out of the council. And it was, I kind of, the way I think of it is imagine like a, a sort of petulant teenager <laughs> arguing with essentially their um, parent or caregiver. That's kind of, that's sort of the way that I would imagine it. Obviously, you can't impose those sorts of values. But I do see Richard, this very sort of childlike young king who had a wrong sense of his own importance. I think he had a misjudged sense of self-importance. Was that his fault? Probably not. But that's another that's another conversation. So, yeah, he was being used very much at this point as as a diplomat. He was a mouthpiece for Richard, but he had a lot of skill and experience um, in doing so. And I guess because we're looking at history, you know, from now to then, we know that he died. So no spoiler alert or anything like that. What did he do around the end of his life and how did he die? John of Gaunt, well, um, it's quite tragic, really, at the end of the day. He, in 1386, he finally got his opportunity to go to Castile. So he took his entire household with him. He thought he was leaving England in a, you know, kind of an okay position. Richard was old enough now. He was married. He had his queen. He was settled. Things seemed in a um, comfortable state for John of Gaunt to now go pursue his own interests. So he went off to Spain. He um, barked on a ship. So I can just imagine how important this was to him, how ready he was for this moment to finally go and lead this campaign, this glorious campaign, just like his father would have done, and his brother, and take this throne back for his own with his Spanish wife. And he got to Spain, and it all went very wrong. I mean, to cut a long story short, it didn't work. Um, there is a chronicler called Jean Poissard who talks about soldiers um, suffering from dysentery, but also the heat being too much for them. So all they had to drink was wine and they didn't have enough water and beer and they were just diminishing in this heat. It was it was actually heat and disease that really um, depleted the army rather than any kind of military reason or um, death by war. Um, so it was sad for John of Gaunt. This was his lifelong ambition. And so he was forced to finally return to England to find England in a state of disarray because Richard had, um, there had been a period of what was called the tyranny, which Richard enacted after the death of his wife, Anne of Bohemia. Um, he just went a little bit mad, to put it bluntly. Um, and he started attacking any member of the nobility who had opposed him in some way in the past and who had questioned his um, immediate circle as advisors. Um, yeah, he acted like a tyrant. He was behaving like a tyrant. So John of Gaunt returns to this out of control king. And I think he was very concerned for the um, the way that his estates were going to be left, the way that his the Lancastrian um, dynasty was going to be. So he actually, he resumed his love affair with Catherine Swinford, which is all very romantic. And he very late on in life, he actually married her. So after around 10 years of separation, they actually reunited again and they were married. And his children with Catherine were um, given the name Beaufort. They were legitimised. Um, and that is where the Beaufort dynasty comes from. And without the Beaufort, without Margaret Beaufort, who gave birth to Henry Tudor, who is the father of Henry VIII, 
there would not have been the Tudor dynasty. So this relationship is very important. And I think that was demonstrative. John of Gaunt, yes, it's very romantic. Yes, I think that he did love Catherine. His wife, Constance, obviously died by this point. Why he wouldn't have married her. Um, I think he was very much in love with her, I do. Um, but I think that he was also very concerned for the welfare of his offspring and what that meant for his name and how they would be treated in life. And I think that what he did was an honourable thing. Like I said, I think he was always driven by honour, by duty. And um, so legitimising his children with Catherine was really the first step towards that. But he was particularly, I think, concerned for his son, um, Henry of Bolingbroke, who at the very end of Gaunt's life was exiled by Richard when Richard was sort of at the height of his tyranny. And John of Gaunt then died in 1399 whilst his son was in exile. So it's quite tragic, really, in the last sort of few years. He didn't really achieve his lifelong ambition and... Um, he was uncertain of the fate of his firstborn son and heir. And actually, I think after his death, Henry came over and he invaded and he took the throne from Richard. Richard was, was thrown into Pontefract Castle um, where he died and Henry was crowned Henry IV. Would John of Gaunt have been proud of that? I don't think so, actually. I think he would have been, I think he would have been mortified at the idea that... Um, how appalling a king Richard was. I don't think that he would have been, I don't think he would have endorsed that. I think that he, in Richard's reign, in the last, certainly in the last sort of decade or two decades of his life, he was definitely nostalgic of that age of chivalry, glory, military glory, and very masculine, kingly power that his father exercised. It was this world of war as sport and, um, you know, the king who was, powerful and a warrior was seen as a, as a safe king he was an active king Richard was I think he was an esthete I don't think he had an interest in war and I think that John of Gaunt was left with Richard as a, as a responsibility in a way but he certainly wasn't how he imagined he would be and I think that he didn't particularly like Richard I think he's probably incredibly disappointed that he wasn't a king that his father would have been Yes, I guess at the end of his life, he didn't quite achieve all his goals, as you've said, and that's very sad, actually. Yeah, and I think also just the idea, the inheritance, the Lancastrian inheritance, not feeling that that was secure, would have been a huge discomfort to John of Gaunt, um, because inheritance was a, a very revered, respected thing um, in medieval culture. It wasn't something that one just strips from somebody, but Richard was such a volatile king. I think that John Gaunt always anticipated that Richard had the potential to play around with that to his own benefit. And how many children did John of Gaunt have? He had three wives, so did he have multiple children? Yeah, so he had, I mean, this isn't including children that didn't survive infancy, because um, there were obviously some. Um, he had three children with his first wife. He had a daughter with um, Constance, and he had trying to remember how many Beauforts there I think he had four Beaufort children with Catherine I'd have to check that I think that was about four that was a bit of a sad note on the ending so let's end it well <laughs> yeah let's end it on a more cheerful note so I like asking this question and I don't know if you'll like answering it but if you had a time machine and you could go back what would be sort of either the person you want to meet or the event you want to partake in or even something you want to observe well, I hadn't actually, one would anticipate that I'd say, well, I want to go back and ask John of Gaunt all these questions and see what 14th century England was like. But I wouldn't, actually. I, I would go back if I could and I'd have a conversation with my great-grandfather, 
um, because he was a very esteemed historian called E.H. Carr, and he wrote a book called What is History, which is the seminal history theory book there is. Anybody who studies history will be told to read this book. And I've read it, of course, and I never met him, but I feel my love of history and my passion for history has been, it's not really a job to me, it is a, it's a calling, it's a vocation. And I think that that very much comes from him and my upbringing within the context of his legacy and his family and so that has always been he's always been sort of an enormous presence of figure within my life so I'd love to sit and talk to him and I'm sure that he'd tell me off for many of the things that I've written or said but I think I would like to have a long conversation and probably lots of wine learn things from him that's actually really fantastic to go see a relative that you look up to and it is a very popular book every year yeah. has read it it's <laughs> <laughs> amazing yeah. And I guess that's it. I mean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I again, I'm very pleased. And hopefully everybody will appreciate John of Gaunt in a different light. He's a very influential man. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, the book will be out next year. Mm-hmm. Yep, I'll put a link to your information in the show notes. Thank you so much, Rosie. It's lovely to speak with you. Thank you for having me on. Take care. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Helen. Your podcast is very enjoyable and I look forward to next year for this new book. So don't forget to check out her podcast, Hidden Histories, and also check out her website. The information is on the blog post and in the show notes. Helen also had book recommendations in the meantime. So there's Edward III by Mark Ormrod, The Plantagenets by Dan Jones, and The Hundred Years War series by Jonathan Sumption. All of this information will be in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at HistoryA. You can visit the website for more info, HistoryA.com. And if you get a chance to rate this podcast, I really appreciate it. Apparently it helps people find me, so thank you. I also want to thank my husband Jamie and our brood of kids, our family, our friends. Without them, I wouldn't be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.